Craig Walker was our guest on the first ever episode of IT Visionaries. We're so excited to welcome him back for his second interview in which he dives into everything from his origin story to what it means to be a leader. And he should know, Craig is the VP and CIO of Shell Downstream at Shell International Petroleum Company, and he has spent the majority of his career with the company. His journey in tech has taken him all over the world, and he's been forced to learn on the fly and make mistakes. But those mistakes have been the most important learning experiences of his life, and now he's encouraging his employees to explore and fail and learn in similar ways. Craig shares all of that and more on this episode. We hope you enjoy his insights. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Hey everyone, this is Ian. You might have noticed that this episode is released on Tuesday instead of on Wednesday. That is because we are switching the scheduling of IT Visionaries to include a fun new segment called Trailblazer Tuesdays, where we interview a trailblazing IT leader just for a little bit at the end of the episode. You can hear it at the end, but first, let's get into our interview. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, across the pond, Craig, what's going on? <laughs> Hi. Uh, what's going on? Gosh, it's a it's a end of summer day in London. You uh, catch me towards the end of the day. Uh, a busy day as usual, full of all the different things that tend to come a CIO's way. So I'm um, always fun to finish the day uh, talking with you guys. Well, we are super excited to have you back. Uh, it seems just yesterday that we had you on for the very first episode of IT Visionaries. And so now over 100 episodes later, it's great to have you back in the fold. Um, and there's some, you know, for round two, we want to talk about a few things that we didn't get to in the first time. You know, your episode has been extremely popular and um, we're just excited to have you back. So we, we talked a lot about Shell Downstream uh, in, the, in the first episode, but not a ton about you. What was your, what's your origins in technology? Well, um, so I actually graduated from uh, college as a chemical engineer, um, but I, I graduated at a time in the early 80s when um, IT was becoming more and more part of uh, uh, everybody's college degree. I mean, there weren't really uh, computer science courses per se, but I'd always from my high school days, had an interest in, in IT. Started off with punch cards, like I get a lot. Like I guess a lot of people of my era did. Um, but, but what I'd worked out for myself was um, it was great to do an engineering subject at university, but I wouldn't have made the world's best chemical engineer. And what I really enjoyed was IT. And amazingly at that time, um, a number of big oil companies, but uh, Shell in particular, was um, hiring IT people. And so uh, I put my name forward for that and was lucky enough to uh, get in. And I started off as a programmer, as I guess many of us did. And from there, went forward. Um, I just always enjoyed, I think, I, th I think the discipline of coding. Um, I'd learned a number of languages when I was at university and, and I found it fun. And I, I, I found it something I enjoyed doing. I like to write games, very primitive by uh, today's standards. Uh, but that's really how I got into it. Did you ever feel like when you were 
doing programming that switching into the more of like um like core IT functions like that you had a decision path there that you know it was no no okay i i mean when i joined uh as a programmer and shell sent me on an eight week course to uh, learn uh, structured cobol uh, and of course, COBOL is still running these days. So there's still, there's still life for me uh, after being a CIO. I mean, but if you look back at those days, such a position as a CIO didn't exist. Um, IT was very primitive in many respects in terms of the way it was structured and the way we worked and put things uh, together. There was not the, the IT function in many ways didn't exist. You, you worked for a part of the business. Yeah, I started off working for Shell UK, building sales and marketing systems. You sat very close with the business. You drew things out on pieces of paper, uh, you know, because a screen was 80 characters wide by 23 lines deep. Uh, you understood the logic of what they were trying to do, and you built that into a program. You know, and I look back on it these days, it was pretty primitive. If you think about the security, the way we tested things, the way we did uh, releases, it was, a, it was a very different world. You know, I think, you know, you kind of had the T-shirt that said, you know, real, real programmers test in production, you know, <laughs> it was a different world. Did you, I mean, I'm curious, like back then when you were working at Shell in a company that was as big as it was, did you feel like you, you know, were on a trajectory or a path to someday be in a leadership position? Well, I think in the sense that I came in through Shell's graduate program and therefore, like many big companies back then, and indeed companies today, you're, you're brought in on a graduate program and there is a plan set out for you. I think that plan is clearer for people today, but then who knows what IT will look like or be shaped like in 20, 30 years time. Um, I joined a very different Shell. You know, back then we were not a global company. We were very much organized by, by country. I was very lucky to work in many countries during my career. I, I spent three years in London. Then I went off to um, Saudi Arabia for three years. We built a couple of blending plants. I did all the IT, including coding in Arabic. Uh, then I went to Dubai for four years where I headed up IT. Um, then in, and all of that was with our downstream businesses. Then I went to our upstream businesses, spent two years in Aberdeen in Scotland, then uh, three years in uh, Colombia in South America, then back to London where I headed up IT for the UK and Ireland. Um, then I quit. Uh, I went to um, KPMG uh, Consulting. I, I did six amazing years with them, which I now tell people was the uh, best training course that Shell ever let me go on. <laughs> Shell, Shell came back to me and said, did I want to rejoin? Um, there was a CIO role uh, for um, uh, the downstream businesses in Africa uh, out of Cape Town. I spent four great years there. Then on to Houston to be the CIO for our trading and supply businesses for six years. That took me to 2014 and now obviously the CIO for our downstream businesses and I brought trading in behind me. I would not have known when I joined as a programmer that I would have got all those opportunities to actually run a little IT department, say in Saudi or in Dubai. And you've got to remember that was at a time when we didn't have email. There was certainly no internet. You know, it was hard enough to phone back to the head offices in, in London and The Hague. Uh, you got telexes. How many people listening to this would even know what a telex was? <laughs> so it was a very different world. You were sent off over there and told, hey, young man, you know, we've got... Or, or young lady, you know, we've got, uh, we think you're good. We think you're, you, you need the opportunity to go run this thing for us. Go make it happen over there. 
And uh, that was a fantastic opportunity. And it's hard, actually, to give people these days in a global organization where everything is so uh, connected and communication is, is instantaneous, to give people the opportunity that I had, and indeed many others of my kind of generation, to go somewhere for a small or a big company and go make your mark. Go learn by your mistakes. Go learn how to manage. Go learn about different cultures. And I think a lot of that in global companies and the way the world has globalized is not as easy anymore. So it's hard to get some of that learning, some of that experience, some of, some of that failing and picking yourself up and going and trying again in today's world because you're more surrounded by a management um, structure, a company culture that doesn't allow you quite the same latitude that uh, we have. Yeah, no, that, it's a really great point. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, you know, CIOs and and leaders that we talk to that, you know, haven't haven't had the opportunity, especially globally, to like bounce around to to other companies. And then their companies are, you know, becoming global brands, right? So they yes. haven't had those those pit stops. For the folks that haven't had that, what were some of those lessons that you got in those other countries? Uh, or maybe ways that people could you know, get a piece of that without actually living there. How, how are some uh, how are some ways that you did that? Well, I think I think it was the fact that you were accountable, you were empowered, and you got to work across such a variety of things. So one day I might have been crawling around on the computer and floor, screwdriver in hand, trying to work out why my X twenty five links to the plant weren't working. The next day, you might have a senior executive in from Shell Center in London, and you had to make a presentation, yet you were relatively junior in the company. You inherited a small team of people. Maybe you had a couple of million dollar budget, which was, which was a lot back then. And I was told to go out there and make it happen. Hey, we're building two blending plants in Saudi. You're going to put in the IT. What did I know about putting in the IT? What did I know about building a computer room? Um, I put in some word processing equipment. It was Wang at the time, if anybody remembers that. Um, I put in some DEC PDP 34s and 44s, which were running the software. But I had to build and build out that software, you know, built on a core piece that, that Shell had written, that ran a lube oil blending plant, but in this case was going to capture names and addresses and print invoices in Arabic, which runs right to left, by the way, on specialized uh, printers. So you had to make the decisions. There was no one else from IT there to help you. I was accountable to the general manager um, who was building those plants that we were going to get this up and away. I was going to train some people. I was going to train the operators on the plant. I was going to build a little IT department. That's fantastic knowledge and stuff to do at that age. And if it went wrong, the only person to blame was me. Um, yes, I could, I could send a telex to head office and say, hey, I'm having problems with this. Can someone advise me on what I might want to do? But you built your own network out there, and by that I mean people network, and you learned how to do things, and you made mistakes, and you learned, you know, you got the scars from those, but you got on with the job. And interestingly, I guess at the time, we were all quite young. In fact, I met up with one of the plant managers here in London a couple of weeks ago. He, he left Shell a long time ago and has forged his own career, but he was about 26, 27. I was 24 or 25. And here was Shell trusting us to build these things. That's hard to do today, you know, and you have to take that experience and embrace it. And I think the way to do it these days is to give some of my younger people a feeling of empowerment, a feeling of accountability and say, here's a project for you to do. Here's a program for you to do. Go see what you can do with it. And by the way, I'm here if you need me. If it all goes horribly wrong, hey, we've spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars trying it out. 
all I want you to do is come back and explain to me what you learned. So you can try and do it, but it's hard to recreate that. I love the amount of empowerment that you've talked about both in the previous episode and in this one um, of letting, you know, giving your, your employees the amount of leash. Um, it, it seems like you're really, you know, I don't want to say maniacal, but you're really focused <laughs> on thinking about your employees experience, both for the people that you manage, but also for employees in general. And I'm curious, like what, where does this come from? I, well, I just think I went through a very, unique time before companies globalized and set up global management and leadership structures. And before we had the ability to have this immediacy of a communication, either be it via email or, or video or a conference call that we're doing now or I am. So you had to become very self-sufficient. You had to make some decisions. I can recreate that in some cases, but what I like to do is give people the opportunity to find their boundaries, to learn. And, you know, the best way to learn, as we all know, is actually is actually to mess up. When you do things well, you might reflect and pat yourselves on the back, but you never learn as much as when you get it wrong. So I think helping people be a learning culture, helping people be able to experiment, to innovate, to try things out is is part of what being a CIO is all about. You know, we won't move forward if we don't try things out in IT and learn or fail by what we're doing. Nowadays, people are more afraid to fail because it gets known by lots of people. But actually, as long as you learn from it, it's, it's not as if I'm doing anything that's life or death. I'm, I'm doing things with software to try out 3D printers, to try out AI, to try out um, augmented reality. And we run lunch and learns on this. You know, a lot of my grads and, and others set up courses. Anybody can join business. I can go along and learn a new programming skill. That's great fun. And it allows us to keep the organization thriving and excited and thinking of how we can help the business do better. Because ideas come out. You may have set off just to do a bit of learning about 3D printing, or but nine times out of 10, during that eight weeks of doing something like that, somebody goes, hang on a moment. You know what? What I, you know, I may just have built this little plastic widget, but you know what? We're really desperate to do this on board some of our, I don't know, some of our tankers or out of some of our more remote sites. My God, we've, we've, we've got the answer to a big problem here. And so you start to get people to develop ideas, to think for themselves. Because what I had to do in those situations was think for myself. And I'm, you know, I wasn't the only one. There were, there were probably 5,000 expatriates out there in similar situations. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, but it made you self-sufficient. It made you think. It made you a problem solver. It made you be innovative. It made you do things on a limited budget. And, and all of that is a fantastic way to learn and something that then stays with you, I think, the rest of your career. It, it reminds me of something that I saw in the news recently where um, Google sunsetted one of their, one of their products. And um, it's something that I'm sure, you know, a bunch of our listeners have had the experience of, which is sometimes, you know, a product gets that you created or that you worked on for a long time, potentially years, gets canceled. And I think that that moment, well, you know, pretty awful, I think it's one of those things that younger people don't necessarily have that experience with, uh, especially early in the workforce, is like working on something for a long period of time and just having it completely wiped 
wiped clean. And I think that that's another one of those things uh, is like you can't teach that. There's no school on earth that is going to teach you that you just poured a year of your life into something and it just gets wiped off the board. You have to experience it. And if you're not, if you don't have the mindset ready to be able to do that, you're going to harbor a lot of resentment and you're going to harbor a lot of like, you know, ill will rather than moving on to the next thing. Well, and I think it's important to take time to reflect and learn about that afterwards. You know, could you, when you look back on it, did you, did you in your heart of hearts know after three months, this probably wasn't going to work and you should have had the courage or the moral courage to stand up and say, guys, we ought to kill this now. It's not going to deliver what we said we could deliver. It's not going to do what we said we were going to do. It's not going to be able to scale to the way we need to scale this. You know, when you look at a lot of things that get canceled, I would say nine times out of 10, unless it's because of an external event that was not anticipated, you already knew within a short space of time, this was not going to deliver what it what you thought it was. And, and I think particularly in big companies, there's a stigma about standing up and going, guys, I think this was a bad idea. We should stop. You know, and, and many people would say that was one of Steve Jobs' greatest abilities was to not necessarily spot the things that were really going to succeed, but spot the things he knew were, were just not going to, they were going to fail. It wasn't within the core of what they were trying to achieve. There's a great video when they killed, God, what was it called? Open text or something. I, I probably upset anyone who works for open text. It probably wasn't open text, but they were working on a text um, piece. And there's a lovely video on YouTube of him saying, no, it's dead. It's gone. I'm really sorry, but it's not going to do what we need. There are better things. And I think you must always take the learnings from things that don't work out and explore with your colleagues, other people on the team, what would you have done differently? And, and maybe that difference would not have been to make it succeed. It would have been to have pulled the plug on it earlier. I, I love that. It's funny. We just, uh, on, on another podcast, we interviewed Michael Mendenhall, the CIO, or excuse me, the CMO of, uh, of Trinet. And he used to work for both Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner, uh, at Disney. Yeah. And he said that both of them used to always say essentially the same sort of thing, which is like, is this absolutely your best work? And exactly. they were, and there were, they were maniacal about like, if it wasn't, it's a full rewrite. And like, he was telling stories about when they were working on Toy Story that, that Steve had them rewrite like entire scenes, just like start from scratch, every single thing redone. And I always think about that where it's, where you have Toy Story, which is an iconic story, a, a, something that is going to be seen billions of times, uh, you know, when it's all said and done, if it hasn't already. And that went through massive rewrites. And like, you know, I, I just think that that mindset of, you know, it's not you, it's the work. And if the work isn't good enough, then the work isn't good enough. Yeah. And it's very hard. Let's face it. Very few things are delivered by an individual. It's all about the team. It's all about the right people on the team, the right blend of people on the team, the right culture on the team, a maniacal focus on what is the outcome we're after. You know, this may be the most beautiful solution in the world, but it's not going to give us that outcome we're after. So what are we going to do differently? Yeah, and, and to me, there is no shame in that. No shame in that whatsoever. And if you don't get those lessons early in life, as a manager or a leader, you will keep going down a path for the very same reason of not wishing to be seen to fail, not wishing to be seen to be the one who pulls the plug. 
and, and have the ability to spend an awful lot more money before it goes wrong, or in a worst case, actually really badly damage the company. You have to know when to step back and say, no, enough's enough. We tried, guys. We gave it our best shot. We need to rethink this. We need to start again. In the first conversation, we talked about um, some of the cool things that you're doing to empower employees to be innovative and things like that um, with you know all sorts of different hackathons and building apps and yes. in a day yes. and all of that. Um, yes. Kind of to the point earlier, giving people the, the latitude and kind of helping them say, you can do this thing that you've never done before. Like, I promise you can do it. And here's the tools to try it. I'm curious, just like kind of checking in um, a, a year later, what are some of the some of the cool things that you've seen uh, to improve employee experience, to improve, you know, some of these programs and, and drive some innovation within the company? Well, I think it's about you as a leader being seen very much as a person sponsoring it, very much as someone who's interested in it, is interested in the kickoff, is interested in how it goes along during the time it runs, and very interested in the outcome. Mm. And, and if you can gamify it and make sure people, whatever, whether they produce something successful at the end or not, or they came up with a prototype or not, you celebrate the whole thing. And, and, and actually, I worry I'm not doing that enough at the moment. I think we are just so busy, it's hard to do that. But it is about constantly learning. Um, whether that learning is about the business, whether that learning is about the environment in which we're operating, whether that learning is about the technology itself, we cannot stop learning. And that blurring of IT and business now is huge. And it is in just about everybody's industry. You know, people talk about every company's becoming an IT company. Uh, whilst I don't think that's necessarily true, I understand the meaning behind the phrase. And inviting the business in to take part in these hackathons, to be part of these uh, coding tutorials, et cetera, all helps us become one family that's way more focused than we, than we used to be. And I think spending 10% of your week learning, and when I say that to people, they go, but gosh, Craig, that's a whole morning or an afternoon. Yeah, okay, but learning comes in many different ways. You know, learning may just be taking some time to go out with a couple of colleagues and talk over a problem over a coffee or over a beer after work or over lunch. You know, too many of us these days, you walk around the average office, everyone's sitting there with their sandwiches or the meal they brought in and put in the microwave, and they're sitting there on a call or something. No. Again, you go back to when I joined, we all went to the canteen together. Yeah. And why did we do that? Because we talked about stuff. And when you talk about stuff, you learn. Someone suddenly says, hang on a minute. I solved that problem the other week for something very similar to what you're doing by doing this. Now, we use Yammer and such like to try and make that happen. And that's a good tool. And there's many others that, that help you just exchange ideas and information. But there's nothing better than sitting down and talking. And in my view, we don't do that enough. And if I can encourage that in people, that really works. You're having stand-up huddles once a week around different products we're running or different projects we're running. People just sharing ideas and telling stories is, let's face it, the way the human race got to where it is without debating whether the human race is in a good or bad place at the moment. <laughs> but we got there by sharing stories, by telling stories. And then us going, wow, so that worked for you. In my situation, that could work as well. Or you learned that. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to do that because that sounds not a good thing, but could we try this? So that art of storytelling 
taking jargon out, having real conversations about real issues, real concerns, real opportunities, real challenges, real fun stuff. That's the way we learn and that's the way we move forward. And that's all part of learning and that's all part of changing the culture. Is there something that you see your fellow CIOs, you think like screwing up more than, more than <laughs> other things? I think there's, there's two types of CIOs emerging today, or, or one was already there. I think there's the CIOs with the passion for the business and the business get them and they understand them and they want to make them a part of the team. Then I think there's the CIOs who are still stuck rather on the technical side. Now, the technical side is extremely important. Don't get me wrong. If I don't run a reliable, secure, you know, day-to-day operations, then I don't have credibility. I have to be able to do that. But I have to be able to take that other step where the business wants me at the table. They want to have my opinion. They want to have my input because they know I'm just not going to talk technology. I'm going to talk about the business with a technology toolkit, just as the CFO talks about the business with an understanding of the numbers and an accountancy toolkit. You have to be more than just the IT guy now. And I don't think that comes easily to everybody. It's not in their DNA to do so. And actually, they're happier in the technical arena. And that's fine, because I do need people who are very happy and very competent in the technical arena. But the people who are making a difference now and putting their commercial hat on, understanding the bottom line, understanding how the value is generated in their business as a good or a service comes down that supply chain. And and becoming far more customer-centric. You know, if you're in the pharmaceutical industry, you're becoming patient-centric. You know that's where the future lies. How do I give the best service based off my products to seriously ill people? In my case, how do I put the best products in front of that person to enable them to do the best things with their equipment, with their mobile needs, with their transport needs based off the back of my product, but I'm actually bringing them a service. Um, And you've got to be very customer centric or patient centric in my other example to be able to do that. That's a big change. Shell has sold product for 100, 120 years. How do we become a customer centric company? How do we turn product into service? and service that people want that make me different to someone else who's selling a similar product. That's the challenge for a modern day CIO and a modern day IT department. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when we had um, Joanne Olsovsky, this CIO of Salesforce on um, a couple of times, and she's, she's one of those people. And obviously Salesforce platform is the amazing sponsor of the show, but she is such an awesome CIO in the sense that she's so dialed in on the business um, yes. and her time at the railroad, I think really, you know, similar but different to Shell in the way that, you know, you ha- it was one way for a hundred years. And so when you work at a company like that, you have a unique perspective because you've seen generations of people come through a company, you have access to data, you have access to insights, and you have access to to right. legacy thinking, which is something that, you know, you lead a, a transformation. You know, we talk a lot about digital transformation, but yeah. um, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of companies go through a digital transformation from a company built in the 90s to now, you know, try a company that was built, you know, over 100 years ago. And, and it's something that I think Joanne was just really dialed in on. And, you could tell that the CIOs that really hone in on what are the outcomes that we want to see in the yes. future 
that those things and like embedding in all the different pieces of the business are going to be the most successful. Yeah, well, it, I, I mean, it's vital, right? You know, as I said last time, what are my three themes? Commerciality, one team results and results of business results. If you go back to my history in Shell, the fact that I worked for all these small, small companies, if you like, in different parts of the world, I grew up in Shell, really in the business. Yeah, I was very close to the business people, both in work and outside of work, because you're in an expatriate community. You're talking about the environment, the regulations, the legislation, the competitive landscape, and what is it I could be doing with, when you look back on it then, fairly primitive IT, to help us be successful in that market. Now, yes, I'm a CIO, so hopefully I, I, I get a kick from the tech. The tech is fun. We, we live in a fantastic world where the technology is moving so fast. But at the end of the day, that may be the fun part, if you like, of my job. But for me, what really turns me on is seeing the business results as a result of what I'm doing. Am I getting better asset uptime? Am I providing a safer environment for my employees? Um, am I translating what I'm doing internally? And I think this is one of the skills of this digital piece, is can I translate some of the things I'm doing internally into a value proposition for our, for our customers or for our suppliers? So if I work out how to make my own plant operate better, can I translate that into helping someone else's plant operate better and thus offer them a service off the back of the fuel or the lubricants that they're buying. And I think, you know, you've heard me say it before. When people say to me, Craig, what do you think of this digital stuff? I go, well, geez, I thought I was doing digital for the last 30, 35 years. <laughs> was I doing analog? Did someone not explain this to me? To me, at the heart of digital is data. Everything is about data. What we're really doing today that we weren't doing five, certainly 10 years ago, was generating all this data. You know, be it off people because I have wearables on me, be it off plant, be it off my own plant, be it off our customers' plant, off, our, off the fleet uh, solutions or the fleets that we, that we deliver diesel and lubricant to. Um, all of this data is pouring back to us. And you cannot possibly, you know, I think a mistake some CIOs make is say, oh, we're going we're gonna to clean up our data. Yeah, well, good luck with that one. <laughs> You've got to dam the river. You've got to clean up the. You've got to clean up the lake. And to do the two is not only extremely expensive, but if you don't have a goal in mind, you're just cleaning it for the sake of it. Yeah. Actually, what you've got to do is is find some use cases where there could be really big value, and make sure you have senior support for that. You have middle management support, and the guy on the ground who's doing the job is going, Yeah, you know what, Craig? If we could sort this. This would not only give my people a safer working environment, but we could really increase the way the ships run or this plant is run or this lubricants plant is run, this, uh, this, uh, this refinery, yeah, whatever it is, or I'll just be able to get trucks through our loading gantries faster. Okay, then I'm onto something and it's going to start with the data. What data have I got to help you do this? Can I use some AI? Can I use some machine learning? Do I have enough data to actually make that happen. Who are the SMEs in the business who can help me with these algorithms? And then you just go after that piece. And if that works, make sure your architecture, you know, the way you collect the data, save the data, process the data, and then how do you visualize, use that data back into the business? Is that scalable? Can I, can I roll that globally? Can I, can I actually deploy it? But start with a few pools of things, if you like pools of data, that are really going to make a difference to a certain part of the business. 
Because again, it's a little bit about credibility. Make sure your architects are on top of this to make sure I can scale and deploy. But don't, don't start out by saying, yeah, everyone talks about digitalizing the core. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. But, but where are the real hotspots that I can make a difference? Else I fear we will go back to the 2000s, 2001, where we stuck E in front of everything and went, wow, I'm going to do E finance and E asset. And <laughs> no, no, no. Cost us all a fortune, delivered a 3 5% uplift. Didn't really do what we needed. And let's face it, when you go on a journey like this, this is about a culture change, a transformation of the way we work. And if you don't take the people with you who are going to use it, they fear machine learning, they fear AI, they fear for their jobs. But actually, I'm trying to liberate them to really make a difference. By the grunt work, you know, the, you know people talk about taking the robot out of the human. Yeah, that's a good place to start. But it's about the data. I, I love that. We, you know, we've been talking uh, on the show with uh, a couple folks. Um, we've had a couple folks from Splunk on on IT Visionaries. Yeah. And, you know, what's so interesting is like this concept of, of dark data, this concept of, of it being in, you know, so much of data that's happening right now yeah. is just completely lost to leadership. But it's sitting there, right? It's not, yeah. it's not, it's, it's dormant for lack of a better term. I'm curious, like, how do you leverage, you know, data that you weren't necessarily, necessarily taking action on, you know, uh, you know, the, you talk, we talk about data lakes, we talk about unstructured data, you know, and then figuring out business insights from it. I'm curious, like, what is your approach? Well, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it does come back a little bit to what it, you know, people say to me, well, how do you write a digital strategy, Craig? Yeah, that's <laughs> a tricky one because I, I'm not sure there is such a thing. I think you have to have a strong view of the technology stacks you're going to use because every day someone in the business or IT will tell you they found this great new tool and that's great and that's wonderful, but you know what? That's just going to push my costs through the roof. I have to take a view on what tools I want to use and then I need to really be so in deep with the business that I get where the pain points are. I get where the pressures are. I get where the competition is really going after us. And then let's start to look at, so what data have I been collecting? And not just what am I collecting in huge volume now. What have I actually collected over the last five or 10 years that's there, but we haven't tried to integrate it with what we have now? And what insight is there there? What are we really trying to do then? Start small, try things out, See if you can make it work at those five stores, at that, at, at that particular part of the plant in the refinery, with those salesmen, with those customers. And if you start to find traction, then start to extend it. Start to look for what they like and what they don't like. All this to me is, it's almost a voyage of discovery, mm. backed by strong architecture, strong data standards, strong understanding of cybersecurity, yeah, you name it. How can I extract the most from this? And if it doesn't work, kill it. Try the next idea. But really have a culture where both your people and the business you're supporting want to try things fast, want to move things into production fast. But if it doesn't work, kill it. Try out the next thing. Look for where there's real value there. And then when you find it, throw everything behind scaling and deploying it. And you never know where some of this is going to take you. You never know where you're going to get insight that you didn't expect. I mean, the number of stories one reads about, well, we started down this route thinking, 
I don't know, if we linked more Mars bars with the sales of Coca-Cola, life would be fantastic. And then you realize that was completely the wrong thing to be doing. That wasn't what people were after. They were after this thing over here. But on the way through, you learned. And that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Fail fast, kill it fast, try the next idea, see what works. But be very careful with AI and machine learning. Because, you know, as all the literature and the experience will tell us, until you get to hundreds of millions of records of rows of this stuff, uh, your algorithms may throw up some very interesting ideas that are not true at all. So don't hand it all over to the machine. Make sure the people are still there and the machine is helping them explore ideas. It's helping them test out ideas. It shouldn't be the thing that's telling you exactly what the answer is and blindly go do it because it's not that mature. Yeah, there was a, uh, I pointed a survey and um, 56% of the respondents agreed that data-driven is just a slogan in their organization, <laughs> that their company actually isn't data-driven. Yeah. Um, like what an insight, right? Like that that so many people are saying that they're making decisions based off data. You know, I mean, it's funny. I'd say, you know, our company mission is guilty of this all the time where we track a bunch of data and then we like make a data-driven decision, but it wasn't really a data-driven decision. It was kind of just like, using a, a small sample size to to prove something that we already thought was the case, right? Yes, to, yes. And, and of course, there's the inherent danger in that, that if you have enough data, you will be able to prove just about anything you want to prove. Right. And, and this is the risk of the bias in these things anyway, because it's driven by the bias of the people who are setting up the algorithms, et cetera. And, you know, there's plenty of press on how, how dangerous that can be. But to start with, you're really using this as decision support and you're tuning and retuning and retuning the algorithms until you get to a point where you say, you know what, I'm willing to let the algorithm now make the decision and drive that process with these safeguards around it. You know, what are the limits of where I'm willing to let it go to? But I think it's very important you understand really what you're trying to achieve and you understand at what point something goes from, yeah, it's nice to have this added piece of data and these insights coming from the data, and I'm going to use that along with five or six other things I use to make this decision, to actually starting to really rely on that algorithm to actually make the decision for you. And at what point do you move on from that and go, yeah, I'm going to let it do that whilst I now analyze this? Yeah, do you have any stories where, you know, uh, and I know you can't share anything proprietary, but where you you took a bunch of you know potentially unstructured data or something like that, and thought one thing and then got totally different results. So when you look at what we do in the upstream around um, seismic interpretation and some of the very clever algorithms we now have running around that, you know we shoot three four D seismic now. Um, very clever stuff gives you an amazing view of what's. Um, under the surface, you know, we would argue we have some of the leading algorithms there. Interestingly, though, we have data going back 100, 120 years when we used to just, you know, shoot very primitive seismic. What we've been able to do is look at that very old stuff with the very new stuff and go, and, and the algorithms or the machine learning has gone, well, hang on a minute. You might want to go back and look at this stuff that you shot 50 years ago because actually, it might be that you discounted that and there is a gas field there or there is an oil deposit there, but you weren't able to see it from the 2D. But when I equate 
what we're doing now and what you shot before, it looks like that has a very similar sounding and you might just have been wrong in discarding it. So it can allow you to go back in time and give you an insight on something you may have missed. That's so fascinating. And I think that's interesting as you start to see patterns you never were able to see before because there was too much noise or there wasn't enough detail. Now, not all of those might be might come true, but some might, and that may be worth you know real dollars to you. So I think there is something about don't discard your old data. At some point, you may wish to go back and have a look at it and let the machine look at similarities between where you've been successful and where you in the past actually discounted it. Um, but, you know, looking for patterns is an interesting thing. And I think um, a lot of what we're able to do now is visualize things in a different way. And I think that's important. You know, the, the finance people can look at a page of numbers and spot the one that looks wrong or looks different. A lot of us don't have that ability. We think in patterns. We like to think in pictures. So how can you turn a view of a market, a view of a trading market, of a, of a commodity market, a view of a refinery or whatever it might be, a view of a machine? and turn it into something, into a visualization that people more instantly, our brains recognize the anomalies in that particular picture. Because that's what you're looking for. Because the anomalies are either good or bad, but they're the places you should look at. And then, you know, when you look at all this data streaming back off a refinery or whatever, can we look at having centers of expertise where, yeah, a lot of that data is being looked at in real time but edge compute is looking for the anomalies, is looking for the things that are moving, maybe in not obvious ways, but over time are moving. Look at that across a whole bunch of machines because you know my gas compressors or my pumps are the same in the upstream or the downstream. So don't just look at my manufacturing plants in downstream. Look at that data across a broader, you know, a broader set of machines and start to highlight and feedback to a center of excellence that maybe somewhere in the world, hey, this looks like it's moving in a way we've seen in a different country. And that would indicate we ought to be looking at this in more detail. And that's worth a lot of money to anybody. Anybody who runs assets, very few percentage points higher uptime gives me a lot more return and gives me a lot more customer satisfaction if I am fulfilling a production line or whatever it might be. That could be in the car industry, you know, wherever it might be. You know, it's funny, in the first uh, time when we talked and you you shared the insight that I believe it's that you sell more Coca-Cola than any company in the world. I could be, is that right? Uh, we, yeah, we're one of the biggest resellers of, biggest. of Coke, obviously, yeah, through, um, uh, uh, through the outlets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, it, it, it kind of got me thinking about, um, you know, this idea, you know, the... Uh, Clayton Christensen in Innovator's Dilemma talked yes. about, you yes. know, this idea of, you know, you drink, you drink, uh, people drink a milkshake on the way to work, not because they wanted a milkshake, but because oh, they wanted yeah, something to do. Story, yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. 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 Yes, um, yes. but, but when you think about, you know, being able to harbor data, you know, like sales data, for example, of like, you know, people buy, you know, Snickers, generally speaking, between, you know, 1230 and, and 1 p.m. or whatever. So potentially yes. you could give the insight to the field that says, hey, move your Snickers bars closer to the cash register, you know, from 1230 to one rather than just, you know, always keeping it in the same spot. Yeah. I think like those types of insights, I really think, you know, especially like stores have been thinking about, but not yes. necessarily taking data-driven action. Correct. Correct. But, but even when you do that, you, you have to have won the hearts and minds of the people in the store to want to do that. 
a great point. Because they will say, oh, but I've always done my planogram this way. I've always laid out my store this way. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. What does a machine in head office know? And that's where I say you, you want them to feel empowered, but you want them to realize that the machine is giving them insight they may not have seen before. So don't just say at 1230, put the Snickers bars next to the point of sale for an hour and then take them away again. You, you want to, at least in the beginning of this, enable them to use this as other insight they may wish to use and then empower them to use that insight to, to the advantage of that store. And if you can gamify it in some way that you publish the results of all the stores and who managed to get the most out of the AI, all of those are good things to do. But in the first instance, you don't want to make it look like the AI is telling them what to do. Yeah, because I think that's quite important that they feel empowered to do things in their store. Oh, but great. They've got some more information now and they may be able to get more out of their sales. Um, when I lived in um, Houston for six years, I was always doing things in the house. And, you know, the danger was that someone might say, oh, yes, men in their 40s turn up at, at you know, their equivalent of, of um, home base on a, on a Sunday morning and they buy screws. And they often buy glue at the same time. Therefore, men in their 45s on a Sunday morning are looking for glues and screws, right? No, I'm not. What I'm actually looking for is my wife has bought something during the week and she wants me to hang it on the wall. <laughs> yeah. That's actually my motivation. I am buying this because I need to do something with it. What you need to get behind with the machine learning is what is motivating me to buy it? You know, back to the story of I'm buying the milkshake because it has bits in it. And every now and then I suck a piece up the straw and that's exciting. And it keeps me going on my journey, keeps me awake on my journey at seven in the morning, right? It's not about the goodness of it. It's about, it's something to do. I can't drink a coffee when I'm driving. That's dangerous. I've got to tip it up and spill it over me. Um, it's what is the motivation for doing it? Not the fact that I do it. I don't want to get an email that says, oh, you bought some screws last week. Would you like a screwdriver? No, that's not what I'm after. That's not the reason I bought the screws to, because I want to screw them in the wall for the fun of it. It's because I needed a job done. And so you have to get behind the thinking. These algorithms have to get behind the, what is motivating someone to come in and buy the Snicker? Is it because they like chocolate at midday and they can't be bothered to go buy a sandwich? Because again, a Snicker bar is easy to buy. I'm sorry, easy to eat in a car. A sandwich isn't. So are these people time poor and they're going to jump back in the car and drive? So they just want something they can easily eat. You know, what actually is the motivation behind it? It may not be that they really like chocolate. They may even know it's not that good for them. But it's too difficult to eat a sandwich and drive. In fact, you could say it's downright dangerous. That's why I love those little tornadoes, the ones that are in like the tube, and then you just eat it with right. the sleeve on it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it's the banking one in the UK, um, and it may be true in other parts of the world. I have a great app on my phone. Um, it does just about anything. If I have to go to my bank, it is seriously because I have quite a difficult question or a uh, financial decision I have to make. I go to the bank. What is the bank full of? Retired people. And when they did a survey on this, these retired people are standing there asking for statements and all sorts of things. And I'm sitting there going, hey, just do it on your internet. You know, you're a silver surfer. What did they find? These people are actually lonely and they want someone to talk to. Yeah. And that's really sad. But banks are now got branches where they're not really adding that much value they might as well find a different way of engaging those people because it's not they want statements printed out. They just want to have a chat with somebody. That's a great point, right? 
Like, I mean, and they could sponsor, you know, uh, parks or whatever it is and, and have, you know, way less, way less investment and have more impact. Do a financial seminar if you want, right? But if you're not careful, the AI will say on a Friday afternoon, people over 65 come and ask for statements. I could make a really incorrect deduction based on that piece of information. So it's getting behind why. Why is somebody actually doing what they're doing? And this is where the danger is in the IT, and it's in a danger in the CIO and my people not making sure we get behind just the excitement of the technology because you could go spend a lot of money in the business on completely the wrong thing based on the fact an algorithm has, has managed to spot some you know, instances where certain things go together. Isn't it, a, isn't it one on, um, there was a, it could well be a incorrect story, but there's one that did the rounds of CIOs about algorithms that were run in New Jersey or machine learning was done to try and reduce the number of accidents. And they realized accidents peaked in the summer and the, and the algorithm left to its own devices said the easiest way to reduce um, accidents in the summer was to sell less ice cream. <laughs> because that was the correlation it made. Lots more ice cream sold in the summer, lots more car accidents. Clearly there, that's your highest, that's your highest correlation. Clearly complete nonsense. Well, maybe it isn't. Maybe people are dropping ice cream on themselves whilst they're driving. I don't know. But, but you have to be so, you have to un, have an understanding of the data and an understanding of the questions you want to ask. Else you'll, you'll, the business will go off and do some crazy things. Yeah, correlation doesn't equal causation, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. Um, sorry, well, we're going all over the place now. <laughs> oh no, I love it. I mean, we got, we got to get you out of here. It's, uh, it's, you we're at time. You I could, I could keep going for hours. Um, okay. Last question. This is our lightning round question. Um, okay. thanks to our friends at Salesforce platform, go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about the lightning platform and how awesome employee experience is on the world's number one CRM lightning round question. I just got one for you, Craig. Because we already did the first one. Uh, yeah. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? That's a lightning question. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think it is, hey, we're having this um, strategy conversation about a new business idea. Who's the best guy from your department to be there? Oh, that's a good one. Right. I still think despite all my success of getting most of my, you know, certainly all of my leadership team on the leadership teams of the business, I still don't think enough people instantly think, yeah, we're thinking of this business opportunity. Hell, where's the, where's the guy from IT? Because he's going to give us some really good insight. He or she's going to give us some really good insight. That's the question that should be asked more often. I love that. That's great. Craig, it's been awesome. Uh, we got to have you back again in less than 100 episodes because it's just too good, uh, too good chatting with you. Um, anything, anything to plug? Anything our listeners should check out? You know, I, I think we all should spend time every week listening to podcasts such as yours, making sure we're listening to our fellow CIOs, our fellow industry experts, because there's always a gem you pick up in these things. Uh, why people think there's a gem in mine is another question, but um, <laughs> uh, I always pick up a gem when I, when I listen to my fellow CIOs. And I think that is so important. Um, whenever you're traveling, make sure you're just reading some of the right stuff. And it, it's not a question of going into the detail of hundred page documents, but it's picking stuff you like to read, which just gives you that piece of insight, gives you that spark of idea, you know, and 
make sure we're really focused on what our businesses are trying, are trying to deliver. Because that's what it's all about. You're a business person first as a CIO. You just happen to have the technical toolkit with you. You know, let's step into that role. Yeah, let's take our place. I love it. Thanks, Craig. You're the man. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me back. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And now here is Dragana Boris from the Salesforce platform team with our Trailblazer Tuesday segment. Thanks, Ian. Dragana checking in for another Trailblazer Tuesday segment where we feature amazing trailblazers like Elias who have turned their visionary ideas into reality with Salesforce. Hey, Elias, how's it going? Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you guys having me. Pleasure to have you on the podcast, Elias. Can you share with our listeners a bit about yourself, your current role, and all the fascinating projects you're working on? Sure. Thank you. So, Elias Dea, and the current role is here. I am the software architect lead on the legal department for Corning. From an industry perspective, I've been doing this almost 20 years, many of it um, on the Salesforce platform. Amazing. And can you share a little bit about what Corning does, what we might know them by? Sure. So Corning is a 165-year-old company. Probably most folks are familiar with our Gorilla Glass. So Very familiar. It's extremely durable. Helps me many of times when I drop the phone, I'll tell you that. Aside from Gorilla Glass, there's all these amazing things that are happening at Corning. Elias, I know you're working on this super cool project where you guys are digitizing in the legal department. Can you share with us a little more on this? Yeah, happy to. So as you can imagine, the project itself is a large project, right? The first step in it is to, as you mentioned, digitize everything. Once we have everything in digital format, we needed to create a platform that helps everyone inside legal have access to those files, everything. So anything anyone would want to do within the legal department. So that's creating an NDA, setting up a new litigation, putting a patent request in. All of that, the goal and plan is to do that in one single spot. That's where Salesforce came in. We are using the platform to literally aggregate everything into a single view, into a single platform. All of the tools that we are using and different systems within legal, all are going to aggregate and all flow into Salesforce. And this is what you know we're calling our quote-unquote one view, right? So all analytics, we can do everything in a single platform. That's the quick, the quick summary there. I love it. One view, you know, at Salesforce, we love that 360 degree view and you guys just got that one solid view to look at it. I'd love to hear a little more about how you guys are partnering with IT on this. Like what's this launch and what does the collaboration look like between to do? Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I was brought in about a year ago. I came from uh, Motorola and Google. So I've done this in the past at Google. So the key thing here is we wanted to stay inside the legal department from a biz ops perspective. We want to get all the expertise there, but we also did need to partner with IT. And IT has been a great partner with us. They're literally, hey, okay, what, you know, what do we need to do to help you guys be successful? So they've been a phenomenal partner. But to your point, we, we live inside legal, right? We're the op- kind of the business operations team inside legal, which allows us to really understand the workflows and processes and really be able to automate and integrate everything so that the end user for right now on the legal side, the end user, the attorneys, the paralegals can really get their job done in a, in a quicker, more efficient way. But IT from a partnership perspective has been phenomenal with us. So 
this is super exciting stuff. And what is this rollout looking like? What's next and how are you guys approaching this? Great question. The rollout will be phased. We're going to do it region by region. I mean, the great thing here is we had, you know, our first prototype within two weeks, right? That's part of the, the power of the, of the Salesforce platform is, you know, hey, just create a couple of custom objects and go that way. But the reason we wanted to do that, and it's funny, we laugh, IT was a bit surprised that we got it out so quickly. So EMEA will be our first region, and then our Asia Pacific folks, and then the rest of the US with the different departments. But we want to get it out have folks start using it, see if any changes happen, and iterate on those changes. Again, going from zero to prototype in two weeks, these changes are going to be happening quickly, and we want to make sure we stay on top of it. It's a different bit of a rollout than um, I think some larger companies are used to, but we want to make sure that we're doing this properly, and the platform gives us that ability to do that. Well, it sounds like this is moving fast and furious, but I'm sure you guys will have no problem executing it. But I like having <laughs> all of this experience under your belt do you have any advice for other trailblazing visionaries like yourself, whether it be career or implementation related that we can take away? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing I've learned over my years is when you come into a project, you know, similar to this or even a new process or you're doing anything is to concentrate on the actual workflows and processes, right? Don't worry about the systems you're trying to bring in. Focus on the process. And then, right, once you understand the workflows and the process of what the end user actually wants, then, then bring in a system that fits that. Don't do it the other way around. I've seen too much early in my career, people do it the other way around. They'll say, hey, okay, we got this piece of software, and now what? And then uh, they're trying to make it fit. Get the process right. You, know, you can get a system to come in there and do what you need it to do. There you have it, folks. Words for all of us to live by. Thanks for joining us, Elias. Hope to have you on for a full episode in the near future. Looking forward to it. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you again to all of our IT Visionaries listeners. If you ever have a question for us or want to reach out, you can just email info at mission.org. That's info at mission.org. And we can answer your questions. We can reach out to past guests. We can you know, book future guests, all that fun stuff. Thank you so much for listening and let us know how we can help you out. Take care. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.